as we're getting this ready, I would like for somebody just to come on the mic and testify about what God did in your life at last year's retreat and what are some of the things that you're expecting to see in your life or in others' uh, lives at this retreat that we're going to be doing that Glenn is coming down for. So just somebody quickly testify about something that happened in your life for a retreat and then uh, what you were wanting to see this time. Hello, can you hear me? Go for it. All right, so last year God set me free from uh, duplicity and uh, has made me a, a woman who is transparent and free from the past and hidden sin. So this year I'm definitely expecting this to be the greatest move of God in my just whole Christian experience. Come on. Amen, amen. Somebody else, quickly, maybe just testify about maybe a disciple you know or somebody that's going to get baptized that's been a result of your witnessing. Um, I'm definitely excited to see many of the disciples we have in our small group get baptized. They're on fire. They're excited to come, and they're expecting, they're coming hungry uh, to meet with God and to, to give their lives over and to make it um, uh, just to, to testify in front of others what God has already done in their lives. So I'm excited to, to see what God does in the lives of these women. Amen, amen. I think you're referring to the one that's on our Facebook picture. Yes. With, uh, we won't say their names, but, yeah, that family, that is so awesome, right? Yes, amen. Amen, amen. Okay, uh, let's get started now. Let's open up our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We left off last week reading through verse 15, but we're going to start at verse 14 and then finish the chapter today. The title of today's message is The Mystery of Godliness. The Mystery of Godliness. And if you wanted a subtitle, it would be Christ Revealed. So The Mystery of Godliness is Christ Revealed. Let's look at verse 14. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh and was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up into glory. The first thing that we want to see is that there is no verses or paragraph breaks in the Bible, so we, we want to understand that his correlation of the, uh, the requirements for elders and deacons flowing into this mystery of godliness is 100% intentional because what he is establishing is the foundation of the church. And the foundation of the church is built upon Jesus. Jesus came to make disciples. Disciples should be ordained, anointed, and appointed into leadership. And that cycle should continue of making disciples, disciples becoming leaders to make other disciples. 
So after he just gave us this great discussion in the previous verses, 1 through 13, on what it took to be an elder or a deacon, it's no surprise that then he would talk to us about Christ, because Christ is the cornerstone of the church. And that's why he says in verse 14, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions, so that if I'm delayed, you'll know how you ought to act in the church. So this is what elders and deacons need to do. They need to establish order. As he said in Titus chapter 1, he said, Paul said to Titus, I left you in Crete that you may ordain elders and then set in order those things that are lacking or those things that are unorganized. So the leadership has to come from knowing Christ, and then that leadership with the Christ foundation puts the formation of the church together, which is God's household. So God is a father, he has a son, and he has children. We are those children. And then it says the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So we know, of course, that our God is a living God. We know that the word church is ecclesia called out once. But what is the church of the living God. What is the ecclesia called out once of the living God? It is the pillar and foundation of the truth. So think of Jesus as the cornerstone or the foundation, and then pillars and foundations being built on top of that, from which a whole skyscraper or a large building could hold many, many, many people. So the idea that all somebody needs is God or Jesus all by themselves is contrary to the Scripture, because if all you had was simply just a personal relationship with God but didn't interact with the church, you would be missing the pillar and foundation of the truth. So it's very, very important that we recognize the relationship between God and his church. Now, it's not to say like how the Roman Catholics have, that we need the church to be saved, or we need the church to pardon our sins. No, but we need the church for the pillar and foundation of truth. There should be people who have studied under other elders and disciples all the way back to Christ, one passing the baton to the next. We call this church history that have contained the body of truth, and that truth is a foundation of pillar for us to build our lives on today, hence the reason for elders and deacons. So it's all put together. This is what it's about. Now, he moves into verse 16, beyond all question, the mystery from which true God in its springs is great. So now he's saying everything that you do in the church that becomes this pillar and foundation comes from the revelation of this mystery. And so the Greek word for mystery, write this down, the Greek word for mystery is mysterion, so it sounds very similar to English, mysterion, and it simply means a hidden thing. Now, when it pertains to Christ, it is a hidden thing that was revealed. So some people would think of like mystery novel novels, who done it novels, these type of games that people used to play, you know, who done it, one person is the criminal, everybody else has to find out who they are, a Sherlock Holmes type of thing. So the idea that the mystery of godliness is great isn't that nobody hasn't figured it out. Uh, in one sense, we haven't figured it out fully. That is true, and we will be continuing to figure out this passage that comes after this. But in one sense, it's already been revealed, hence the reason why these scriptures are coming. So he's saying, great is the mystery that has once been hidden, but now is revealed. So you can know the mystery of godliness. You can know it now, and this is how you can know it, is by simply reading this 
passage. Now, this passage in the NIV is kind of indented, and it has a weird way of writing, or weird format, rather. That's because the NIV tries to take passages that would have been known to a Greek reader to be poetic, a song or a proverb, and they try to put it in a different writing format and how poetry would be written in English. See, in the Greek, they didn't have to space and commas like how we did. They would just have known that as the writing was flowing, there was now a poem being given or a song. And so what we believe in, the, in, in this passage right here is this is one of the first confessions of the Christian church. This would be one of their first creeds, just like we now know of the Apostles' Creed. We know of um, uh, uh, Athanasius' Creed. We know of the Nicene Creed. This is a creed that predates Paul. We don't, uh, scholars don't believe that Paul just made this up. They believe that Paul had taken this and put it into his writings. And so for anybody that thinks that the, uh, the mystery of godliness, Christ revealed as we're going to describe in these next passages, was a later interpretate, interpretation, interpretation, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> interpolation is the word. Yes, I'm coughing. Interpolation. If people think that this was basically made up, that Jesus was God, that they made it up afterwards, but Jesus was just a prophet like some Muslims say, or other religions want to say Jesus never claimed any of this. This was something that the, uh, the first Christians interpolated. This is a proof positive against that, because this song or a creed, they believe came, the scholars believe came way before Paul's time, and it would be within the time period of the very first disciples who knew Jesus and heard Jesus' teaching. And so Lee Strobel did a talk on this with some uh, New Testament historians, that if this would have followed the pattern of myth, like how great kings had myths follow their, their, uh, their lives, legends, how legends were born about people like Davy Crockett or, you know, about Paul Bunyan, things that we would have myth about in America. These probably were real people, but myth developed. New Testament scholars figured that in this time, as they studied other, uh, other uh, people and the myths that followed them, it would take anywhere between 50 to 70 years for a myth to develop. So get that in your mind. It would take about 50 to 70 years for a person who was once alive with them to then become uh, deified or mythified, if you could say, and then these myths spread about them. So now we know that Paul is writing here at the latest around 60 A.D., because he mentions nothing of the temple's destruction in 70 A.D., so we know he's writing around 60 A.D.-ish. This is one of his last letters, First and Second Timothy, one of his last letters. So this is 60 A.D., and then if this predates his writings, it could go anywhere to 50, 40 A.D., and Jesus uh, left the earth somewhere around 30 A.D. So this is within 10 years of the man Jesus Christ. So you have to see that this group of words right here, he appeared in the flesh, was vindicated. This little section of scripture is such a powerful nugget, not only to show us who Jesus is for us today, but who they believed he was in the very first church. So beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. Now, why is it uh, this true godliness, because this idea of godliness means to be God-like. 
all the Greek and Roman gods had this type of incarnation, something that they would go from heaven to earth. But ours is different than their stories. It is a deeper mystery. One of the reasons, and write this down, it's a deeper mystery than just the gods becoming man, is because, number one, our God laid aside his rights and authority as God to become man. So he did not come as Hercules, as a God slash man, half man, half God. He did not retain any of his divine powers and authorities. And you can see this in Philippians chapter 2, which, by the way, the Corpus Christi, which is known in the Latin or the, the story of Christ in Philippians chapter 2, this passage that I'm about ready to read also predates Paul and is another one of the creeds. And you have to bear with me, because just turn to Philippians 2, uh, because my internet is running sl uh, very slow here. I'm trying to get it up on my normal Bible as well. And you'll see that number one, why this is a mystery that is great is because this mystery is not God coming down here to squash man. He's not coming as half God, half man. He is coming as God humbled in man. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, look at it right here, verse 4. Each one of you should not look only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now, once again, if you have the NIV, you see this done a little bit differently in the format because it's showing you this is a creed, a song, a, po uh, a poetry form. And so it's showing you that this is a different type of writing style for even the Greek reader, we wouldn't know that unless it did it this way in the American, or, or rather English format, so that's why NIV does that. So here he goes. Here he goes into this um, creed that predates Christianity. He says, who being in very nature God, look at what comes next, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now verse 7, here it is. Why is the mystery of godliness among us as Christians great? Because our God made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And keep going. This goes now into the second thing. Not only did he not come as a God in man, like a deity, like a superman, he came as a man. Uh, clothed, uh, he came as God clothed with humanity, sharing the same weaknesses, the same problems and issues, but also in the appearance of man, verse 8, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. So he became uh, a sacrifice for us. He himself became the sacrifice for us. So the fleshly, earthly nature he took on as a man was crucified. Now go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and look at this. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. True godliness, talking about the nature of God, talking about how God acts. Godliness, that's what it means, the nature of God. The mystery from which true godliness comes, the true God nature, the, where that comes from, where that springs from, is great. It is outstanding. It is not the story of the Greek and pagan gods. It is a great mystery because, number one, he did not come down as a superman. He came down as a man, limited in every way. 
there was nothing he could do outside of the Holy Spirit and what the Father gave him to do. He could not rely upon his divine nature to do anything. And then secondly, in his humanity, in his earthly nature, he is crucified. So Paul is writing to people going, he, our Lord and Savior, our God in the flesh, he didn't come down to Superman, but rather he was crucified. You don't understand that? Why? Because it's a great mystery. Now, why is it still hidden to some people and not revealed to others? Now, I want to show you the word great before we move on. Now, then I want to show you why others can't see it. The word great is megas, megas. Where do we get this word now in our English language? Mega, mega, you know, mega bucks. Mega millionaire, mega, uh, you know, like when it comes to describing like a car, you know, like that car is a mega truck. That, that, that is a mega house. That is where we get this word from in the Greek, megas, great, enormous. This is an enormous mystery because the people of that day could not understand it. Now, why is it hidden to some and others it's been revealed? Because now these next few sentences... Here is the mystery of godliness revealed to us. And you can look at it like uh, Christ in the Old, uh, the Old Testament is Christ concealed. He comes in Genesis 18 on the plains of Mamre as the angel of the Lord. He shows up to Gideon as the angel of the Lord. He comes as the angel in the burning bush with Moses. He comes as the son of man with Daniel chapter 7. He's revealed in prophecy as in Isaiah, 50, uh, as Isaiah 9 and Isaiah uh, 53, as the suffering servant. Okay, so all of this is in the Old Testament is Jesus concealed. The New Testament is Jesus revealed. Now, why is it hidden? Well, all you have to do is go to uh, the book of Corinthians, and you'll see right here. Why is it hidden? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. It says, no, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. Now just keep on going. We don't have time to read this whole thing, but keep on going. Into verse 12, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. So how do I understand the mystery of Christ? By the Spirit of God. Okay, am I back with you guys? Yes. Okay, let's keep going. Looking at that passage in Corinthians again. The passage in Corinthians says that the only way they can understand this mystery about Christ is by the Spirit of God. Now, verse 13 of chapter 2. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. Verse 14, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, 
for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgment about all things, but he is not subject to any man's judgment. Now, where does this passage of revelation and understanding by the Spirit come from? Where does it fit into? Well, you go right back up to what we just had read. It fits in the context of understanding who he is and who he was at that time. They didn't know. Verse 8, the rulers of this age did not understand it, because if they would have, they wouldn't have crucified him. So why is it a mystery? Because people don't have the Spirit of God. Now, others of you might be uh, be thinking of the passage that also says the God of this age has blinded the minds of people. But I want you to go to that passage with me, because I want you to see in that passage there's something we don't understand. 2 Corinthians 4.4, it says the God of this mind has blinded minds of who? Unbelievers. So think of it this way. If Satan had the power to blind everybody without, uh, without limit, he could just blind everybody to Jesus, well, then nobody ever would get saved. See, he can only blind the people who have in their own free will choice not wanted to believe. That's the difference between us and Armenianists and Calvinists. Calvinists would say that God uses the devil to blind people until he himself opens their eyes. And once again, this is without their choice. It's his predestination, and he kind of forces that upon the believer. We don't believe that. We believe that we have a choice. We believe that we can hear the gospel being preached and then believe upon it. As Romans talks about, how can they believe unless one is preaching to them? How can one preach unless he is sent, etc.? And so when somebody hears this message, Jesus is the Christ. He's come here. You know, if you were alive at that time, you know, here he is. He's with us. He's preaching uh, repentance. If you then would hear that and reject that, you are an unbeliever. Satan blinds your mind. So now that you can't see it, because there's no way to see it unless you receive the word. So now how does somebody receive sight from being blind? Well, you go right back to that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and just look at it again, and it's right there. This is not gymnastics through the Bible. It's perfectly in context. How does somebody do it? They do it by the Spirit, and that's why it says, go on down to verse 14, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that are from the Spirit of God, but they are foolishness to him, and he cannot, because they are spiritually discerned. He cannot understand the verse 15, the spiritual man makes judgments or makes understanding about all things. So how do you get the Spirit? John chapter 3, verse 3, you've got to be born of the Spirit, born again, accept the message, and now the mystery is revealed. Now you can go to the end of the Who Done It book, and you can see, oh, I know who done it. Now you can go to Book of Matthew and understand all of Genesis to Malachi. Oh, I get it now. This was Jesus revealing himself to us. It was a mystery 
to Daniel who Jesus was in Daniel chapter 7 when he came on clouds of glory with the Ancient of Days and was given all authority. It says that Daniel was troubled. It was a mystery to Isaiah and to the others. But now to whoever is in the time of the new covenant, in the time of Jesus, if you hear his words and believe upon him, the Spirit will come to you and you will be able to understand things that this world calls foolishness. Because great is the mystery of God's nature, godliness. God's nature is great. Now, now that we can read these verses and we can say, well, I understand them. I believe that Jesus is the God-man. He is the Theanthropos, 100% God, 100% man. As God becoming man, humbling himself in Philippians chapter 2, he participated in what is known as the hypostatic union. He uh, unified his godly nature to the nature of man once and for all and all of eternity. He will be the God-man. He didn't just resurrect as a spirit, as Jehovah Witnesses say. He will forever contain the spirit, uh, his divine nature with the flesh. That is called the hypostatic union. And by doing that, it was a kenosis, not just to be born, an, an emptying to be born, but a now a continual humbling for all of eternity because he will forever have flesh. Now, of course, he has a divine rights and authority of God after he resurrected, but now he still carries flesh. So how great is our God that he would still relate to our creation, uh, to us as his creation? This would be like you putting on that dog costume to go to your child's birthday party, but then say, now for all of eternity, I want to have the look of a dog. God is spirit, Father is spirit, Son is spirit, Holy Spirit is spirit. But yet Jesus said, I will forever identify with man in flesh. Think about how awesome he is. And that talks about the beautiful nature we were originally created in because we were made in his image. So this might fry your noodles a little bit, but then you get to the understanding that he might have, oh, well, he not might have, but he did have his plans all along so that man is the apex of his creation. He loves man. There isn't an alien race that he created in a more better image. We won't evolve into better creatures as some sci-fi, uh, you know, movies can show us like Avatar. These creatures on that island are more advanced than us. They're stronger and bigger. No, when you look at mankind, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are the apex of God's creation and the very image of himself and the image he now identifies with. With, with flesh for all of eternity. So now let's get into the revelation of this mystery. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. Here it is. Number one, he appeared in the flesh. Number two, was vindicated by the Spirit. Number three, was seen by angels. Number four, preached among the nations. Number five, was believed on in the world. Number six, was taken up in glory. So let's just go through these six points one at a time. The first point, he appeared in the flesh. Now, Sir Isaac Newton wrote a book about this, calling this one of the two greatest um, fabrications of the Catholic Church. Now, follow me here. Don't think that Sir Isaac Newton is a bad guy right off the bat for doing this. Uh, even though they believe that Sir Isaac Newton at times questioned the Trinity, he had good grounds for questioning this passage, not the way it is now in the NIV, but rather the way it is in the King James, because during the time of Sir Isaac Newton, 
he began to realize that there had been, in addition to this text, where the word is stated now, he, uh, the Catholic Church, through tradition, through the, the scribes, had inserted the word God. And thus, by doing so, they had changed the passage. And if you want to look this up, it's called An Historical Account of Two Notable Corruptions of Scripture, a dissertation by Sir Isaac Newton, published in 1754. Uh, now, the reason it was off after his death, and the reason why they published it after his death, was because uh, a lot of people would, would consider this to make him a heretic. But he was actually being scholarly to the Scriptures. And you might want to wonder, what is the other notable corruption of Scripture? That is the comma Johannium, which is... 1 John 5, 7, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Now, track with me here. We believe today that this was changed. We do believe that 1 John three sixteen was changed, that it wasn't originally God, as the King James had it, but it is what all the majority of the manuscripts show and what the NIV has as He. And we also believe that 1 John 5, 7 is a traditional creed that was inserted into a passage to clarify John's passage there to make the creedal statement more viable. Now, are these things that were in the scriptures as corruptions, are they falsehoods? Are they lies? No, they're not. God was manifested in the flesh, and there are three in heaven, the Father, Word, and the Holy Spirit. But the problem has, is there's no reason to change the passage from the how the Holy Spirit intended it. It is, he appeared in the flesh. Now, some of you might say, well, what's the big difference, Pastor? Well, if you're dealing with the Arian-Trinitarian uh, conflict, the Arians are not having a problem that Jesus was uh, pre-existent, that Jesus was divine in so many ways. Their problem is, is that Jesus wasn't the Father or equal to the Father. Now, of course, we as Trinitarians don't believe he's the Father. We believe he's equal to the Father, and so the word God would clarify that for us in some ways. And so you can see how a scribe may want to clarify this and say, God appeared in the flesh. Hey, guys, John 1, 1 says it, and now it says it here. But we don't need its help, and even if the Arian still says, well, I can accept this, he appeared in the flesh, it could be the angel Gabriel appearing in the flesh. Who is he? Just like in uh, the Jehovah Witness doctrine. I have no problem with them trying to speculate over this scripture because once they open their, themselves up to what does the scripture mean, all we have to do is go to the other ones because we're not lacking on clear definitions of who Jesus was before he came to earth. So let them question God versus he. Let them say, well, he may be ambiguous, et cetera, et cetera. Let them have their fun here and then just walk them through the testimony of Scripture, and there's beyond any shadow of doubt who he is. Having said that, that doesn't mean we need to change it to God. So I wanted you to know that variant, and that's why uh, it is there, and other notable scholars made issue of it way before our time. So that's why it says, he appeared in the flesh. Now who is he? Is he uh, Jesus? Yes, he is. Now who is Jesus? Is Jesus the angel Gabriel? No, he's not. Can you, can you show me that through the testimony of Scripture? You can't show me Jesus as the angel Gabriel. Somebody might say, oh, well, he's the angel of the Lord. Well, let's just go now to Genesis 18. Let's see who the angel of the Lord here identifies himself as. Genesis 18, verse 1. 
Does he call himself Gabriel? No. In verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abraham, the God of the Israelites, the self-existent one, Yohevah, Jehovah, Yahweh, the great I am that I am. He appeared to Abraham. So right there, the argument's already settled. And then as you work your way through the entire Old Testament, you see exactly who he is. He cannot be anything other than the God of the Bible. He cannot be a lesser God. He cannot be an angel given worship as God because that would be idolatry. So he is the God of the Bible in the person of the Son. And just to touch on that Johannian comma right now, uh, you know, do we have another place where it says these three are one? Absolutely, clearly, no variant, no manuscript difference, Matthew 28, 19, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So we don't need additions to the text, corruptions to clarify. All we need is to let the text speak for itself. So he appeared in the flesh. We know that means that God took on flesh. We see that as the testimony because Jesus was God before his incarnation. According to John chapter 1, verse 1, we see it clearly. And then, once again, if somebody wants to question John verse 1 and 1, and they say that still could be a God or go in the grammar, that which the grammar does not support the argument. We've talked about that before, excuse me. But what does clarify it clearly is verse 18 in John 1, 1, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is God himself and is the closest relationship with the Father who has made him known. So anybody who wants to be a stickler on transcripts, uh, manuscripts, and say the translation in, in, in 1 Timothy 3.16 is he, it can't be God, it can't be God. See, even your NIV tells you, then just say, look what the NIV says in John 1.18. If you're going to take 1 Timothy 3.16, then you have to take uh, John chapter 1, verse 18, because that is as perfect as the Greek can make it out to be, that it's no one has seen God the Father, but we have seen God the Son. And so he came in the flesh. Sarks is the word for flesh. It simply means that he took on the earthly nature. We know by reading the rest of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, that he did it without sin. He was born of a virgin, so he would not have the sinful nature, but yet he would have a earthly nature. So that's simply what it means. Also, John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Uh, the word among us, dwelling among us, means he tent, he tabernacled, he pitched his tent next to us. Jesus came to be our next-door neighbor. Isn't that a great mystery? Wonderful was vindicated by the Spirit. Well, when was the vindication of the Spirit? Well, it was in probably three different ways. Write these down. Number one, it was in his baptism. The baptism, the Spirit coming down as the dove, receiving the fullness and the voice from the Father. This is vindication that he is the one that John the Baptist had prophesied about. The second vindication of him by the Spirit is all of the miracles and things that he did. And he said to the people, if you see these things and then you still blaspheme me and what I'm doing in the name of God, you're actually blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which is the unpardonable sin. And then the third thing vindicated by the Spirit is the resurrection 
from the dead. The Spirit vindicated all that he had said and taught, being the Son of God, and resurrected his flesh. So he was vindicated by the Spirit, by his baptism, by his life of miracles, and by the resurrection. He was seen by angels. Now this right here is where people have a couple different views on it. The two major ones um, is is seen by apostles or messengers. Because we know that the word in the Greek, uh, angels, uh, angelions, uh, are simply just messengers. The word just means messengers. Sometimes uh, that word is misinterpreted to mean like a spiritual heavenly being, and I can go into that, but I don't have time right now. But simply, sometimes it just means uh, messenger. It's angelos. I'm sorry, angelos. Apostolion is... Uh, one that is sent apostle, but angelos is simply a messenger, and it can be a heavenly messenger sent by God, and you can see that in Thayer's lexicon, how it's used in different times, and sometimes uh, people have uh, gotten into trouble by looking at angel as always being a spiritual being, and I could talk about that later, but that would take too much time. So the first understanding of this, when it says he was seen among angels, this would simply mean he was seen among his disciples. Now, I personally prefer this uh, understanding of this, and I believe that the word should be messengers here uh, instead of angels, because the angels had already seen him. Now, some might say what is the option number two, that, that these are real angels, and the reason why they're seeing him, and it's uh, such a special way, is this would be like uh, at, his, temp I mean, at uh, his temptation, when the angels come and minister to him, could you imagine these angels who had seen him create the universe, create man, now sees him hungry and actually has to feed him? Or uh, seeing him pray, not my will, but your will be done, sweating blood, and angels come and comfort him. Uh, and they would say that this would make sense because the angels had never seen their creator, their savior, in this way. And so I agree that that adds something to the text. But I don't think it follows in the order of the text, because it says, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, and preached among the nations. And so I believe that the ones who are seeing him are the ones who are preaching for him. And so there we have the context that I believe it's messengers, uh, was seen by messengers. And the more outstanding thing would be, than just angels saw him because we can't talk to them now. And the reason why I think it would be messengers is more outstanding is because you have the witness of Peter. You have the witness of Mark. You have the witness of Matthew. And so we have testimonies that they said they touched him, they seen him, was preached, uh, excuse me, was seen by angels, by messengers. Number four was preached among the nations. And so we see that uh, this is the Great Commission it's happening in the life of Paul. He's actually a part of that right now, and we won't spend much time on point number four, but he is preached among the nations continually to this day, was believed on in the world, so the people in the world believed on him. This doesn't mean that everybody believed on him, but people in the world believed on him. Once again, angels didn't need to believe on him. That's why I believe the subject here is now messengers. The messengers saw him. The messengers preached about him. 
the messengers believed in him. So I think that's what's going on there. So we won't spend much time there. And then lastly, was taken up in glory. After his resurrection, we know that he ascended to heaven, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, and the book of Hebrews says that he is there now making intercession for us. And so let us just look at this passage where Hebrews talks about where Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God so that you know how to approach him after having the mystery of godliness revealed to you so that you may know him and may have a relationship with him. So let's just turn to uh, the book of Hebrews as we look at where Christ is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And as I'm turning here, I just want to encourage you today to know Christ not in a doctrinal sense, not just in a creedal sense, uh, we can get so consumed about having the right theology that we miss knowing him. It's not just knowing the doctrine. Knowing the doctrine is important, but we also must worship him in spirit, not just in truth. You can have truth and be as dead as a doornail. You need spirit and truth. And so I want to encourage you to take all of this wonderful theology and to spend time with Jesus and to grow closer to Jesus and to be able to know him because he is the one that you will spend eternity with. Look at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 in closing. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle. Okay, are you with me for my closing? Yes. Okay, here we are in closing. Looking at Hebrews chapter 12. Just go to verse 1. Stand up if you can right now. And somebody go to the keyboard and let's just welcome his presence as I finish this scripture. And then just worship him for who he is. Worship him for his great God nature in man. Worship him for being the God and Savior not only of your soul, but for the sin of the souls of the world. Let's just worship him today as we close out. Read this with me. Hebrews 12, 1 and onward. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such great a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Now, who is Jesus? He's the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Today I just want to encourage you to go after God, to put God in the right place in your life, at the center of your heart. Let him be the center of your vision. Look at Jesus and let him reveal who he is to you more and more and more. Yes, the mystery has been revealed, but that doesn't mean we know it all. He could say, yeah, we know there's DNA, but that doesn't mean we understand all about DNA yet. We could say, yeah, we understand about string theory, but that doesn't mean we know everything about string theory and physics. He could say, yeah, we know there's a universe, 
but that doesn't tell us we know everything in that universe. We can say we know that there's an ocean, but that doesn't tell us that we know everything in that ocean. How much more can we say we know who God is, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and that the Son became flesh, and today is our Lord and Savior? How much more can we say that we don't know all about Him yet? There's so much to know. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Let this old hymn of the church encourage you today as you seek Him. I'm going to pray for you and then spend the next few moments in prayer as a cohort. I would say as your cohort, Peter, then at least for 45 after, just seeking him and knowing him more and more. Father, we thank you today for Jesus. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit that's here to bring you and Jesus into our hearts. We pray today that by the Spirit we will search him out even more. We pray that we will discover more of who he is. And as Hebrew 12 says, as we know more about him, let it encourage us to fight through the struggles we have today. As we face more towards him, as we see more towards more of him, let it encourage us to be able to run our race. Let it strengthen us, not just as a theological truth, but as a spiritual relationship between us and him. And today, Jesus, we welcome you in our life. We love you so much. You are a mystery to us that has been revealed, yet there is still so much to know. Jesus, we just want to know you more. want to know you more. Be with us today. Use us for your glory. Bless this time of prayer. And as we go our separate ways, let us continue to know you more. In Jesus' name. Take the next five minutes to pray. Bless you in Chicago. I love you. And I will be with you soon. God bless you. Bye-bye.